Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. Welcome back. And also, uh, we've got our viewers here on YouTube uh, tuned in. So for those of you who are listening in on the podcast, thanks for tuning in. Those of you who are watching on the YouTube channel, thanks for tuning in. So, uh, you know, vice versa. If you don't follow us on YouTube, check us out at IraqVeteran8888. That's my YouTube channel. Also, if you're watching on the channel, obviously go check out Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. Shameless plug. It's a great podcast, by the way. Yep. We post every Friday. Uh, it's usually about an hour-long episode, and we dive into all kind of different topics and stuff. And uh, we just try to go about it in a, in a fun manner and everything. So uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. All right. And today, we're going to be talking about the modern Minuteman. Yeah. And that concept um, has been getting more and more important as we see uh, recent events as they've turned out and you know things that have happened all over our country uh, the civil unrest, the looting, the rioting, you know, people's businesses being, uh, you know, burned and attacked and looted, uh, people in many cases being assaulted, uh, sometimes with deadly force, sometimes with deadly consequences. Yeah. And it's become more and more important for us as civilians to understand that our society is comprised of men at men and to understand what that concept is, what it means, where it's going. Uh, what our responsibilities are to each other and to our country. And uh, we can really kind of go down this rabbit hole and kind of talk about um, some of these concepts a bit. Right. And what I'll I'll start with saying is that what a Minuteman means to me, and what it means to me is that, and let's forego the actual term Minuteman, because there's plenty of ladies and plenty of women that are just as capable in these situations as a man. Um, So I don't want to exclude that, but for all intents and purposes, the, the terminology of Minuteman, um, it just means someone that's always prepared, always ready to take action to protect their family, their friends, their country, their nation. Um, and I think it's a big responsibility to, to have that. And, you know, we just talked about it. Um, you know, I started caring with, with all the civil unrest that's happening, um, given the socioeconomic you know, circumstance. Um, you know, I had to start carrying my plate carrier in my car. Um, you just never know uh, when that normally it's in my house. It's staged at my house. It's, you know, ready to, ready to go because I was always prepared to defend my home. But with what's going on right now, uh, you never know what's going to happen in your vehicle. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but a really good friend of mine uh, had a situation where they rolled up to uh, Stone Mountain and they got caught in a protest, uh, unbeknownst to them, that all this took place um, while they were on the road. So they couldn't have known what was happening. Now, if that was myself and my family and my daughter, I would like to know that I have the means to protect myself because I'm the means of getting them to safety. That's my responsibility. So just always be prepared. So I had to start carrying my plate carrier in my car um, and just being able to get up and get in action when needed in one minute's notice. And if you have any training or you've at least practiced with it, it's very quick to put a plate carrier on. It's very quick to get your bearings and know what's going on. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I I feel and what my definition of a Minuteman is and what it means to be a Minuteman. I think that's a very good assessment, a very accurate assessment, and it held true back in 1755 and it holds uh, <laughs> right. true now 
of course, uh, there's been a lot of changes to our country since then. But, um, yeah, the concept of the Minuteman, to me, it represents a microcosm of the prepared, right? Uh, you know, not everyone has the the foresight or the acuity of thought to go, hey, you know, maybe I should have, a, you know, a rifle handy, a pistol, some medical. Um, but that Minuteman concept can go a lot of different directions. It can go the direction of, hey, all right, maybe someone just doesn't want to own a, a firearm or something. And we see that in our modern society, because of all of the luxuries and amenities and conveniences that we have at our disposal as a society now, uh, some people generally have a much more passive type of idea of personal safety because they think, oh, well, the police are always going to be there to protect me, or this person is a designated person that handles my safety, so, you know, I don't have to worry about that. Um, so there are people that, that, you know, maybe just for a lack of ignorance and just not knowing how cruel the world can really be because, you know, the country that we live in is almost a borderline utopia in terms of how plentiful things are. I mean, and the freedom uh, and exchange of information, uh, how quickly you can just, you know, hop on Amazon and order that one item that you need and bam, it's there in a day. It's just the convenience level that we have. We we associate that convenience with safety as well. Mm -hmm. So we think that, oh, well, our safety should also be equally convenient, that I can simply pick up the phone and call this person whose job it is, whose designation it is to come and deal with my problem, right? And the issue is we've created an entire uh, subculture of people who believe that the police are right around the corner. And I believe the concept of the Minutemen can go a lot of different directions. It may not be a combat role. It might be a support role, yeah. right? It might be someone who maybe is just medically trained really, really well. And maybe they just have it in their mind that they want to have a go bag with medical gear and they want to be able to help someone who's hurt in a moment's notice, right? To be that first responder who's sort of mixed in with all the regular populace, right? So that can come in a lot of different forms. It doesn't have to be uh, an armed standing type of thing. It can also be uh, medical preparedness. It can be professional preparedness. It can be someone who is able to render a service in a hurry. Um, say you're a carpenter and your community you know, is, is hit by a disaster and being able to help people uh, with construction or cleanup. I mean, so there's all these different ways that, that these men and men and women are integrated into our society and are a crucial part of our society. We will get back to the armed portion of it, though. The traditional stance of a Minuteman, I'm going to go all the way back to 1755. Now, we didn't have a standing army until 1775. So to put this into perspective, <laughs> I mean, this was 20 years before we had a standing army. Well, oddly enough, these words come from George Washington. George <laughs> Washington was more than just a founding father. He was a statesman, and he was a very extraordinary individual and a very prepared individual, and he believed very much in dangerous liberty and protecting freedom with the people around you. And to say that he is the father of our country is an understatement. He, he basically helped our country develop an entire ideology of preparedness, right? So let's let's go back to uh, some of George Washington's words here. Right. And this is when he was the adjutant general of the Virginia militia, all right? It says here, and this is just referring directly from Wikipedia, all right? 
Uh, upon a frustrating and futile attempt to call up the militia to respond to a frontier Indian attack. These are Washington's words. Mm-hmm. Uh, he experienced all the evils of insubordination among the troops, perverseness in the militia, inactivity in the officers, disregard of orders, and reluctance in the civil authorities to render proper support. Gee, what's happening now? <laughs> right? That's kind of pertinent now, isn't it? Right. And what added to his mortification was that the laws gave him no power to correct these evils, either by enforcing discipline or compelling the indolent and refractory to their duty. The militia system was suited only for times of peace. It provided for calling out men to repel invasion, but the powers granted for effecting it were so limited as to be almost inoperative. It's a very, I mean, that's crazy that the experience then is the same as it is now. Yes. Um, throughout the hundreds of years um, that's taken place, it's exactly the same. Um, so th- that's a great point. And if you circle back to it and say, if he's having those same experiences when, it, when he was leading the militia, as we are now, what can we do to affect change? What, can, what needs to be done? Or if anything needs to be done, does more power need to be given to the militia? I would probably say no. I don't think the militia's role is to um, be endowed with power. And you can see that when they start calling in um, an organized militia like the National Guard. Um, you know, the militia is great during peacetime. Uh, they really are there to help. They're there to help out in times of, you know, natural disasters. And they, when they're called to go to war, they do go to war. They fight on the front lines just like the regular army. But I don't think it under any circumstances should they be given arrest powers or anything like that during these times. Um, but I do, I do see that they, I would probably think they're a little bit more organized than they were back uh, oh, yeah. in George Washington's time. Well, I don't know um, when this particular podcast is going to go live or when you guys are going to be seeing this video, if you're watching here on YouTube. Um, but right now we're right in the middle of the uh, Republican National Convention. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's all different types of saber rattling and, and talks that go on at these uh, at these things, right? Because, you know, these, these folks are trying to get elected and all. But Trump, uh, you know, passed along plenty of opportunities to mobilize federal troops and or the National Guard, in many cases, to send troops to help quell some of this violence in these Democrat-controlled uh, areas, which uh, where most of all the stuff is happening right now. Okay, right. Um, and of course, most, if not all, of that support has been uh, turned down. Okay, so it tells you yeah. that there's an inside element to all of the stuff that's going on, and we're going to get into some of these elements in a future podcast. But I'll just briefly mention now that a lot of the violence and things that are being committed towards the citizenry in these areas are being in some cases perpetuated, if not given the blessing of by the very government that is claiming to protect the citizens. So what you get there is not only are certain people being targeted because of either political ideology or that they don't support a given political ideology. In this case, you know, BLM is a known Marxist organization. So if you're not a Marxist, you're all of a sudden a political enemy. And essentially in these big cities, they are allowing the enemies of their politics to be targeted in a lot of these things. Now, the media will never talk about that. They'll never mention it. Uh, they're not going to you know, provide any girth to that algorithmically or with any honest reporting. So the idea of reporting and um, journalism, as we, as we know it, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, 
journalism was a very, very different thing versus what it is now. We don't right. have true journalists. We have essentially political officers who are there to tow a certain political line and to drive a certain narrative and to try and convince the people that are tuning into their program of a certain political ideology and not present the information in a way that lets people use their brain and figure out, okay, well, this doesn't make sense or this does. So that's kind of part of the issue, right? So we kind of backtrack. Let's go back to colonial America and uh, we'll define what the U.S. government considers a militia. Okay, so and mm -hmm. this is back in colonial America. All right. Uh, it would have been considered all able-bodied men of all Mans. ages. That's what it yeah. says. All able-bodied men of all ages were members of the militia, depending on the respective states' rules. So, of course, you know, that's when you get into individual towns, states, mm -hmm. municipalities, having their own little idea. But the, the general idea is that, you know, you had some form of group of men whose job it was to be able to repel an attack or protect their given town in a state of uh, duress or emergency, Okay. We're going to um, go on to the Militia Act of 1903. Okay, Ooh. this is uh, this is this is the term of what a militia is that we live under right now, according to this act. Unorganized militia consists of state militia forces, notably the National Guard and Naval Militia, as you mentioned. Yep. The unorganized militia comprising the reserve militia, every able-bodied man of at least 17 and under the uh, 45 years of age, that is not a member of the Georgia Guard or Naval Militia. So it still kind of holds true. We're talking every able-bodied person between mm -hmm. a certain age, uh, which that consists of a heck of a lot of people. Right. right. A ton. And they, I, I mean, 17 is still pretty young, but it was, it was very common back in the colonial days to see 13 and 14-year-old kids being put into that militia group. That was a fighting age male um, during those times. It was very common. You'll see it all the time, like fathers and two sons. And these are like 12, 12 year old mm -hmm. kids running around with muskets. I mean, they might not um, be the actual ones firing, but they sure helped with a lot of other stuff. And many times they were the ones that were fighting, but it was very common loading rifles. They're the original uh, creators of the New York carry, those guys would carry, you know, four or five muskets and they would just switch them out. Boom, 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 boom. You'd see a large volume and volley of fire come uh, from that tactic. A lot of the youngsters were used for, you know, like drumming, drumming, yeah, you know, yeah. you see the little drummer boys and you'd also Even see... Even younger than that, yeah, uh, those kids you know, were young. Bearing the colors, you know, a flag bearers, a flag yeah. bearer, you know, so... It wasn't uncommon, maybe not in a combat role, but you're still out there on the battlefield. You, you know, still die, you know, just being out there in general. But, you know, not to get off topic, but if you just think about it, when you start looking at like the pictures and stuff, like it was almost like a, a spectacle. You would see people set up on their lawns with like chairs and they're like watching this battle go down and they're just like you see, you see someone you know taking a picture or a drawing and you see these spectators it was a spectator sport for some reason i don't know why but it was it's just a different well a there different was definitely time. a lot of that during the civil war you yeah. know uh, i i've seen many um etchings and paintings and stuff that depict you know people you know having a picnic just and hanging out watching I'm, the battle I'm happen like, i guess wow, you know like, it's, it's very crazy. different yeah. time of course <laughs> oh yeah um I will make mention, um, and, and this is somewhat historical still in terms of just our, our nation's history, but I took a trip to Savannah, Georgia, not terribly long ago, 
And um, there's a lot of really cool things about the way Savannah as a city is organized and set up in terms of the layout of the city. And you notice it's this series of squares everywhere. You know, when you go into a uh, town, right, and you see a town square, it seems like every town has a square. And you think, well, why is it that this is this culmination of where this town sort of, when you think, hey, this is the middle of town, all right, it's the square, right? Well, there's actually a couple of different reasons for that. The reason you have a town square is because that was the area of town that the town's members would pull all the resources, barricade off, and hole up in there and defend the town against an attack. Right. Well, Savannah, because uh, James Oglethorpe and, you know, a lot of the, the, the early adopters of, you know, the basically the people who built Savannah, right, you know, those folks originally were really concerned about attacks, and everything. So not only did they have a town square, they had multiple town squares. And each town square had a certain job, a certain task, and all those tasks were delegated to certain squares. Okay, squares four and six, you guys are going to you know, get all the food together, so we've got good food stores. You guys are going to get the water together. And it was this whole uh, orchestrated movement. Mm-hmm. That if they were attacked, they could draw everyone into the into the appropriate town squares, and you had a town square that was assigned to you as a citizen. You know which town square to go to, like a muster point. That's you know? right, a yeah. muster point, and you would go in there, and you'd have your cannons and your muskets, and mm-hmm. you would you know defend the city. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realize that the modern term of a um, of a town square was intended for the defense. Of the town. That's really cool. I was wondering about that because Charleston, uh, South Carolina is set up very similarly, like around Fort Sumter and all that stuff. So um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting to know that history. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So um, as far as Minutemen go, so we, we touched on, um, you know, what the original responsibilities were, where, uh, well, we, we really didn't. So the original responsibility was to be that, that first contact uh with any invading force. So if you had somebody coming in to invade your land and take your property, uh, many, at that point in time, it was the British um, coming in. Your job, your responsibility was to be able to be ready. And I've heard different, uh, different, I guess, stories. They say one said that the name implies that it should be a minute, but really uh, what I've been told is that it was an hour. So you had to be ready within an hour's time um, but the term Minuteman, I guess, was just to convey speed, was to convey the ability to be prepared in a short amount of time. Because um, I can tell you, even by today's standards, minute is very, very quick. I, do, I don't see the, you being able to get all your gear on and get prepared and make, yeah. do, your, do your PCCs and PCIs in a minute to get out there and, and do it. But I think an hour is a little bit more uh, attainable, especially in that time. Um, but really to be that first point of contact to get out there and provide that, that barrier to the town square or, and also to alert others that, you know, this is what's going on. I would say that it definitely would have been probably more of a moniker than, Mm -hmm. than an actual standard that they expected people to be ready in one minute. Now, to be fair, uh, a soldier back then, uh, to be combat effective could essentially grab his musket off of the, uh, off the mantle. And grab his possible's bag and run out the door, and he's ready. Right. So, the needs back then for to fulfill a combat role were probably considerably different uh, than what now would be, of course. But 
I think the general idea, yes, is that within a minute's notice, right? And that was, I guess, the you know the term that was thrown around for sure. (laughs) So if we have the original, um, the original Minuteman, and we kind of transport that to modern standards and the modern responsibility. Um, so what does it mean now? So it means now to, well, now I think we're at a day and age where, you know, there's so much information that you can be ready all the time. Uh, like I stated earlier, we have, you know, we're able to carry our equipment with us in our vehicles. Uh, many of us have um, two sets of equipment so we'll, and multiple firearms. So we'll have you know, uh, weapons in our car, weapons in our home. Um, so we're able to be ready all the time. So how does that help us? That helps us because if we see an accident, it's not only a, a combat role. So now it's more of just, well, we're ready for anything. So lots of us carry medical equipment. So be that first responder. If you see, you know, any type of accident, you're able to stop and help and give aid until somebody come like the actual first responders, whether it's the fire department or, um, you know, any type of EMT medical get there to help out. Um, and also if you see something occurring that is more of a nefarious, uh, you know, act, um, I'm by all means, I'm not saying to step in, but you do have a certain level of responsibility, um, that you have to adhere to that you, as a, as that Minuteman mindset is, no, you're not going to go. Someone's got to do it. Somebody has to do it, but somebody, you have to be responsible and have to have, I'm not going to say you have to have the training, but it sure helps uh, to have a level of training. But just having that, to not have the cowardice to stand by and watch something happen, but to be able to actually have the intestinal fortitude to take action and help somebody when they're in need. I think of it like a force multiplier. Yes. We uh it's funny that I'm wearing a Mad Dog Mathis shirt. Mm, nice. Because that was one of the things that Mathis pushed really hard was uh, being a force multiplier and also the training of indigenous forces to make them a part of your your force multiplication table. But being a force multiplier is a very important thing, okay? Uh no one's saying that you have to replace XYZ, but you can supplement XYZ. And if XYZ is out of commission, well, then now you are your own QRF. You're your own quick reaction force. You're you're your own little tiny army, and you're going to have to deal with it, right? So I think that living within the microcosm of what the U.S. is and what it means, I mean, think about how many years our army was a frontier army for years and years and years. It really wasn't even until probably getting out of World War II before we kind of finally got out of the Indian fighting tactics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we've always been a frontier army. So the way that our disposition as people are is we have that very, um, I guess, personal responsibility mindset of, you know, hey, I'm out here and I'm holding the line. It's just me, right? But it doesn't always have to be some, you know, um, interdiction into a certain situation or something. It can just be you know, everyday life. I mean, life is kind of a training exercise every single day, right? Our brain, okay, as we go throughout our day and we experience the same things that we did the day before, our brain stores those experiences in a much different way than it does, oh, we learned something today. Right. Or, oh, well, we learned some valuable life skill that made us survive this day uh, that maybe, you know, the last 500 days 
never challenged us with. But today we learn that. And your brain stores those things in very different ways. That, that goes in a different filing cabinet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so every day is a training exercise. And life is a giant rolling training exercise. So even if all you do is prepare to be ready for uh, what could happen to you in an everyday situation, then you're already one step ahead of the curve. You're already embracing that survival mindset that human beings have had all the way since the dawn of time. I mean, the fact that humans exist now and weren't ate by wild animals tells you that someone somewhere had to go, you know what, maybe we should sharpen a stick. Maybe I should tie this rock to this stick, and if that animal comes back, I'm going to beat him in the head. And guess what? After I beat him in the head, I'm going to skin him and wear his skin as a warning to his buddies. Right. They had to think that at some point. Right. You know what I mean? So we we have to eventually be men. You you can't just sit back and let the world advance into you know being barbarians and be you know going back into that concept. I mean. It's it's okay to live in a modern world with modern amenities and still have the capability to be a barbarian, but just choose not to live like a barbarian. You know what I mean? You you still need to be able to, you know, bash a lion over the skull and wear his skin. You know what right. I mean? You just need to do it in a controlled way and at the right time and when necessary and know and make the distinction of when it's necessary and when it's not. Well, I think that leads to the a, a good segue to the the saying is it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. So yes, it's okay to utilize the the modern amenities that we have, but we still have to take the time to learn how to do it without the amenities. And that that is essentially what led us to where we're at now, where you have those that need to be protected and those that are willing to protect. So you have, you know, there's a, there's a subset of people, citizens in the U.S. that have delegated that protection to others, and they did so willfully. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends that are not gun people. They've willingly delegated that to somebody else. They know that by delegating that, they, they put themselves in a position where they're dependent on somebody else to do it for them. And then you have those that are gladly willing to take up that task. And not so much in a police, you know, mindset or a police way, but saying as someone that is more trained or more comfortable with doing this, um, I'm willing to do that. So I have might have neighbors or, you know, other people in my community that uh, are not, uh, you know, willing to do that, whether they're older, they're not capable of doing it themselves. You might have like some seniors. Um, we have those that just don't want to. They're afraid of it for some reason, which is fine. I'm never going to say, well, you should do it yourself. If you're trusting me and delegating that to me, then I will gladly do that. Um, you know, that's that's just something that I'm comfortable doing and I have no problem with it. And I think it's also a mentality and, and an ideology that people who value their freedom the most, accept willingly and readily because they know uh, Mm -hmm. that one day they might be that person who needs help. So it's important to extend that hand to others that need it, you know, and and to be that person, right? So we'll go back to Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to quote him. And of course, you guys have heard this quote before. Uh, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. So that kind of puts into, into... perfectly into balance what you're talking about is our society has become you know one of complacency 
that comes from how peaceful things are and the perception that things are peaceful. Right. Uh, you know, I, I believe there's some quote in the Bible somewhere that says something about that there will be war and there will be rumors of war. Okay. So the thing is, it's like, you don't know when that war is going to be at your front doorstep. You don't know when it's going to be outside your vehicle when you're in town getting ice cream with the kids. You don't know where that is. All you know is that the world is a dangerous place and that men are capable of doing those things. It's like Murphy's Law. If it can happen, it will. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever goes according to plan. Right. right? You can plan to go up to the park and play with your kids and your dog and go get ice cream afterwards and go home and go to bed and everything's hunky-dory. That's the plan. And yeah, those laid plans always... Uh, generally, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, are probably going to work out exactly like you want him. But there's that tiny Murphy's Law that comes right. into effect. You know, It can be as simple as the tire busted on the truck going home, or you had a mechanical problem, or something happened. So it's always that inconsistency in plans because of the nature of chaos and the nature of of those rules, those those chaos rules that we kind of live under, right? That mm -hmm. you know, there's just certain things that are going to happen, you know, that we we have to plan for. You know that that that's a great point, and you know, it reminded me that there was this uh, story on the on the interwebs, so it has to be true. Um, but in all fairness, it is true. Uh, so it showed um, you know the this restaurant patio. And there was people eating, just minding their own business, eating. And all of a sudden, you know, they get kind of mobbed by the, this group of protesters. That was in D.C. a few days yes. ago. Yeah. And you, they're just eating. They had nothing to do with it, minding their own business. They went out for a nice dinner. Uh, and this is all presumption because I don't know the dinner could have sucked. But I'm just saying, it, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was a nice dinner. And they get mobbed. Um, and that just goes to show you, like, you never know. They probably never thought in their head, oh, we're going to go eat dinner with the intention of getting stuck in the middle of this protest and having people shouting at you and throwing stuff and, you know, all in your face and your personal space. And you can see the guy, he's like putting his mask on because the, these protesters are right there in their face. Yep. Um, and that just goes back to if it can go wrong, it will. Like they probably planned out that evening, but they didn't plan for that 1% chance of getting mobbed and having to deal with it. Um, what does Monty Python say? Uh, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> right. Seen that skit? I know you have. It's the same type of thing, you know. Right. So, so, all right. How do you know that you're not just sitting there on the on the uh, on the corner having a, a nice a nice uh, succulent Chinese meal with your family there, mm -hmm. have, just having out on the town for the evening, right? And you're surrounded by a mob of of crazy hippies, mm -hmm. and then all it takes is for one of those people to throw a punch at you, and that. Pack mentality takes over, and yes. all of a sudden it becomes a giant fist fight. Yep. And they're just, what are you going to do against 30, 40 people that have got you surrounded? All right, I, I watched the video, okay? Yep. And you've got this this glass, you know, this window that you're mm -hmm. in front of, and they've got them surrounded. They can't get away, even if they wanted to get away. Right. So all it would take is for one person in that group to turn violent. And all of a sudden... And it almost did. It almost it, did. It almost did. Yeah. But all it takes is for one person to get truly violent violence as an action and the violence of action it is contagious mm -hmm. when you if you're in some situation and someone gets violent if if you are 
in that pack mentality and you're all kind of on the same side and you all believe the same thing, it's just weird the way human beings are wired. We sort of, we kind of go, oh, well, it's my turn to punch. And it it's the same thing like a pack of dogs going after a kill or mm-hmm. whatever. Once that pack mentality takes over, you don't know what people are capable of or what level of violence that they're willing to do. And they may not even be in control at yeah. that point. They, they've gone so far down that primordial, you know, that, that primitive yeah. man, uh, you know, route that they are no longer in control. They haven't had the training or they, they don't have the disposition that respects the concept of human life anymore. Right. Or respects the concept of law or well, law and order or what's right and wrong. You know, you, you're not the person that you were going into that situation once you turn into that pack, right? So that could have turned very violent. You know, those people could have gotten hurt and or possibly killed by a pack of, you know, angry people who, by the time it was all over, don't even remember why they were mad in the first place. Right. And then you had the the coward next to him that had every ability to kind of help, yet he decided to, to side with the protesters and his... Uh, with his actions, uh, there's a separate picture of him um, while they're kind of berating this uh, couple. He's just giving up the he's just holding his fist up in solidarity with these protesters in hopes that they don't turn on him. So it really kind of puts that mindset of like, OK, I see them getting uh, attacked. What do I have to do to not have them turn on me? So he basically just holds his hand up with the fist in solidarity with them and just mm-hmm. he's like praying that they leave him alone, which is probably yeah. the most coward thing that I, I could ever imagine happening. Um, there is situation. a very famous photograph, yeah. okay, from Nazi Germany. I know you guys have probably seen it of a rally, and it's a picture of a rally. And all of the Nazis are standing at this rally and they're all, you know, rendering the Nazi salute or whatever. There's one person in the crowd. Oh yeah, I saw that. And he ain't looking nowhere near the camera. <laughs> he's looking off in the distance. He does. He's not saluting. Yep. And you you can look at him and almost tell that it's like he realizes he gets it. Yep. Like he he's the penguin that strayed. You know he, yep. he you can DTF, tell man. He's that not it's DTF. not that he just wasn't ready for the photo. He just wasn't having it. Right. Right. So that person that was in, that was in that crowd was there because if he wasn't, there's no telling what they would do to him. Mm-hmm. So it's very dangerous that, you know, there are situations where people will go along with, with certain things, uh, even though they don't agree with it, just in the name of not getting hurt or, or worse over the situation. And that's a very scary concept. But it's a powerful picture. If you've ever seen it, it kind of makes oh, you I, think, I, dang, you know, be I'm, that guy, right? Yep. You know? I, I first saw that. And uh, you don't really notice it until someone points it out because there are so many hands out. But then once somebody like circles it you can clearly see that you know he's just kind of has a blank look on his face and he's not he doesn't have his hand out he's just like man i i'm not about this This before we move on i do want to recommend a book it's an excellent book that you guys should check out it's written by uh christopher browning it's called ordinary men and it's about the reserve police battalion 101 and it deals with the final solution in poland Mm -hmm. now uh, we're not going to go down this rabbit hole uh, because i I don't want to get into that but it's a great book because these were people that, before they got drawn up into this police battalion, they were just regular people, carpenters, you know, doing their job, just making a living, and they got pressed into this service. And it's crazy the things that people will do when you 
put a gun on their hip and put a badge on their uniform and put them in a uniform, the uniform mentality and how it approaches the violence that government can make men do. It's very eye-opening and scary, and it should serve as a warning, you know. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but it's just, um, it's a really interesting book, and it'll, it'll kind of make you go, dang, you know. Well, there was also um, a university um, study, and it was actually like an experiment that took place just to kind of test that same mentality where they took students and they said, okay, these students are their guards, and these students are their prisoners, yeah. and it was supposed to be like a certain length of time, but it didn't even make it the full length, but just because of the sheer abuse of power that took place. And this was fictional power. It's not real power. But when put into that situation, that that uniform and that, you know, faux power will corrupt. And that's yeah. basically what you see. And that is exactly why it's so important. And it did breed real violence and real <laughs> real consequences. It did, yes. Even though it was just a study and even though it was just regular people, again, you got regular people that were put into the into the standpoint of being, you know, the the, the prisoner mm-hmm. and then random people who were all right, well you're the you're in charge. Here you're you go. Guards. Here's yep. your here's your key card, here's your badge, here's your your nightstick. And then it's just crazy how quick people will enter that pack mentality of, mm-hmm. oh, you're not wearing the uniform, so all of a sudden you're, you're below this person. Now, I don't want to go into that, but it, 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 it is a little bit pertinent to this particular topic because, you know, the whole Minuteman concept, it is almost a, an ununiformed type of standing up, right? You know, so when you have, you know, these um, like early volunteers, you go back to 1755 mm-hmm. with Washington. It's not like these guys all had matching uniforms. They were all just citizens, right? And I think that that puts people on a very different playing field when you come as you are, and you are who you are, and they get to see the person you are. You know, if you show up uh, to muster and you're wearing your patchwork clothes that your wife had to sew together because you're so poor you can't hardly, you know, you had to scrap together every bit of money you could just to afford a good rifle, mm-hmm. which back then was a very important tool for a frontier. The, the most important tool. You had to have a good yeah. rifle, right? Now, you might have holes in your shoes. You might have patchwork clothes. You might have, uh, you know, every manner of other thing that's not well tended to, but your, your rifle, you better believe, is your livelihood. Mm-hmm. And when people show up to muster and you you get to see people for who they really are outside of that, um, it creates, in my opinion, uh, a very, very different environment for soldiering to occur in because there's no – you wipe away all of the formality and you see people for who they really are and you can quickly determine who's worth their salt and who's not. Mm -hmm. You know, guy shows up to muster and he's the – you know, the, the governor's son, and he's got the fancy engraved rifle and clean clothes. No, no, uh, you know, not the, the first bit of, uh, you know, toughness on his hands right. no where he's calluses, had to work, yeah. no calluses, clean shoes, spit shine. I mean, you know, that guy, he's probably going to have a problem. You know right. what I mean? It, yeah, he, he looks apart. But then, you, you know, that guy who had his rifle passed down from his grandpa three generations ago, and you better believe he knows how to use it. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so the, once that finity is stripped away and people just get down to, to people being people at large in the world, I think that uh, it, it did then and it will now speak volumes uh, to what we can expect out of each other and our communities and the power it will give to each other in terms of empowerment, individual empowerment, to do the right thing within your community and to be a 
functional asset to your community? You know, the first the first time I learned how important a rifle was during the frontier days was when I was a young kid and we had to read a book called Sign of the Beaver. <laughs> and I remember their part in the book where this was a young kid. He must have been, I think, maybe 12. And his dad had to go pick up his mom uh, out west and bring her back to the frontier where they, you know, got, they claimed their land. So the father left this kid for months because that's how long it took to go to get somebody with a wagon and a horse. And there was just, um, he was there tending the crops, the farm, you know, gathering food. He was uh, using the rifle, his dad's rifle. He left the rifle there from the hunt. Mm. And uh, this guy comes wandering, like probably normally happened through the frontier. People were wandering. They're trying to find their land. And he's like, hey, can I stay here for the evening? Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm going to stay. I'm going to leave. I just have to make my way. Um, and it was pretty common back then for people to invite guests in for the evening and let them sleep and feed them. And then they go on their way. Well, this guy stole the kid's rifle when he left in the morning. And this kid, you could, you, when you're reading the book, you could hear the, the devastation and the fear because he knew he was dead. Like he couldn't, there was no way for him to hunt and gather meat uh, and get anything. And that's where the book kind of goes as far as him meeting the Native American tribe to help teach him how to, to do these things. Um, but you're, and that just ties into like that rifle being the means of your existence mm -hmm. uh, during that time. And yes, we have uh, currently, we have, you know, a lot of different ways that we can get meat, but that goes back to being the warrior in the garden. You should be able to be able to have the skill set to go and get it and not necessarily have to do it all the time, but you should still be able to do it. Have I think we are going to segue into the modern Minuteman a little bit, and I'll, I'll kind of, you know, we'll wrap up this podcast by going over some of those concepts. But I will just make quick mention that, you know, when we look at the way things were way back then versus now, mm -hmm. is people were investing a lot more time and effort to survive back then than they do now. Right. Oh, yeah. So when survival doesn't become the mainstay focus of everyday life, you pursue other things, all right? So that's when you start getting into the pursuit of, you know, arts, right? You know, you start pursuing philosophy and art and different ways of thinking and, you know, different languages and different writing styles and, oh, let's write a book, let's do this. So it becomes a survival of mankind's intellect more than mankind's physical survival. So we've gotten more away from the physical day-to-day -day survival uh, instinct to the survival of mankind's intellect and pursuits. And both those things are important. I believe that, that, that every man, woman, and child should embrace both those things equally and build a sharp mind and a strong back and a strong will based on those things. However, um, our society now has, has looked at those intellectual pursuits so heavily that they've almost forgotten what it means to really, truly survive and live in the world at large. Yes. So I think that that perfectly kind of ties in what you're saying there. That and what you just said is there are those that wish to pursue the intellectual side of life, philosophy, uh, physics. I, you know, I told my wife when we first met, I am not a smart man, uh, but I'm a hard worker and I will protect our family relentlessly. Um, and I think that those that choose to pursue the intellectual side, uh, what you're seeing is that they 
just because they feel that there's no longer a need to be a warrior and have and be able to protect that they're assuming that they don't need it in all actuality you need that you have to have that side and they can live homogeneously they can live together just understand the roles of hey this is what we do um and this is what you do We're, we will never say hey stop learning and stop going after the intellectual it's worthless that's You're, right you don't need it but yet you're going to turn around and tell me that I don't need it. I don't need these things. I don't need, you know, all of these things that we have a right to have. So let's just live together. Let us do what we do and protect you. And you do what you do and learn and share your, your wealth of knowledge with everybody. It's, uh, I don't see what the problem is. And there are many situations where a lot of those roles are reversed and, and put into very different uh, environments and with people doing their thing. That's completely understandable. I do want to segue into uh, really what the main talking point of the video or the video and podcast was going to be video. all along <laughs> um, is that we want to talk about, okay, well, what is a modern Minuteman? So we've already talked about you know, historically what makes up a Minuteman. And we've talked a little bit about the importance of, of why we we approach that altar now, right? So what does it mean to approach that altar? Now, I would say in terms of combat effectiveness and just being ready to deal with any situation, uh, there are some very uh, important goals that I feel people need to settle in on and make sure that they can adhere to. I actually put out a challenge today on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and I posted a video where I said, all right, set an egg timer for one minute. And can you, in one minute, grab your rifle, support gear, and food and water and enough supplies to disappear for 72 hours and come out smelling like a rose? <laughs> and the responses I got were pretty interesting. Some people were saying, hey, it took me three minutes to get my gear together. Okay, three minutes. Okay, you get a pass. Okay. Right. The point is, you can't do it in a minute. We get that. <laughs> But and there are some don't people that are like, man, I grabbed my stuff and I ran out the door and I was able to come in and turn off the egg timer and I had 15 seconds to spare. Jeez. Now that's ready. That is ready. That's ready. Okay. So what does it mean to be ready? I mean, now versus back then, I think the needs are very different. I think that every citizen needs to have a good functioning rifle. And I, I would venture to say an AR-15 is definitely a good choice. A good yeah. AR. The gold standard. A gold standard. Yeah. I'd say a good AR with um, at least a, a good solid red dot and put a sling on the rifle. You need a sling on your rifle. Make sure you have a sling and at least a decent optic or something. I I, I prefer a red dot for a variety of different shooting I styles. I as well do. And I would say eight magazines and one in the gun mm -hmm. at a minimum uh, with you know whatever ammunition you choose to run. If, if you can afford it, I mean, the, the federal bonded uh, FBI load is great. Uh, it's like a dollar eighty a shot. It's not cheap, but if it's your go-to setup, uh, that bonded FBI load. It's a sixty-two grain load. So if you're shooting sixty-two grain ball, uh, that will perfectly work with your you know, existing zero for sixty-two grain ammo. But the FBI bonded load is absolutely <laughs> great. It expands really good, and it is absolutely devastating. So I, I would recommend that load for sure. Um, but at its core, you know, a rifle is definitely important, an AR-15, I would suggest. For your support gear, you can go with a couple of different concepts. We've already talked about this, Matt and I have, right. in a couple of uh, previous videos about, like, uh, the whole war belt idea 
versus maybe a carrier. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can approach that. But if you are adamant about carrying a sidearm, um, a war belt is a great idea because you've already got your sidearm on there, a couple of pistol mags, maybe a, a pair of AR mags. And on your war belt, you can set up some medical, a couple of tourniquets, maybe some EMT shears and a multi-tool. All right, that and a camel back full of water and a three-day pack with maybe some socks and a change of clothes and maybe some food enough for three days. That probably gets you pretty close. Yeah, and I think what you'll see is those that are able to get their gear in that fast of a time um, do have everything kind of pre-staged. So they do have a war belt. Everything is staged on the belt. It's significantly faster and easier to just grab and go. So you might have your plate carrier with your mags already on it. I prefer six mags and one in the gun. It's just a little bit lighter. Um, I don't... I mean, granted, yes, when we were overseas, we carried a ton because you're outside the base and you never, you just, you don't have access to it. We're not operators. We don't have airdrops coming in. So we have, we carry what we have and we have whatever else in the vehicle. So we were carrying a ton of ammo Um, here. I don't foresee that uh, being an extended, you know, firefight. It might, you know, six, six mags, one, uh, one. I'd say a breaking contact. Yeah, would be more of a uh, appropriate response to yep. a situation if you do need to deploy a rifle in a defensive situation or, mm-hmm. or God forbid, an, an offensive situation. Uh, your your mission is definitely going to be to break contact and, and create yep. distance and escape the, the 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 problem more than engaging in the problem. If it takes me more than seven mags to find the solution, I'm in a bad way. Yes. I mean, I'm, I mean, I put myself in a position where you know I'm in a very very bad way. So well, that's why I like the battle belt idea because yep. you got you know one one magazine in the rifle, two spare magazines. That's mm-hmm. probably going to get you where you need to go initially. You could always have some spare magazines in your three-day pack. Mm-hmm. So if you drop your other mags while you're out doing whatever is happening, you can just plus those up. Yep. Your general skirmish, I would imagine that's probably going to you know, create the distance you need to get away or deal with the situation. Now, some people may choose to go like the full, you know, like a Black Hawk Rhodesian rig. I like the old school Black Hawk um, chess rigs that don't have the armor in them. They're just nice and lightweight. Right. Uh, and I like the old FAL rigs, too. Well, I think They just have four the, mags. They're, well, that one has great. a small space for a small piece of armor on it. I mean, it's not not as, not as a 10 by 12 or anything right. like that, but it's enough to, to kind of You can put a six-inch plate yeah, in it if chi- you want. A little chicken plate, you know. To, I, I, like the, uh, I like the Rhodesian rigs. You know, yep. they're nice. But no matter what equipment you decide to use, make sure, remember, when you are arming yourself with a rifle, you've got to be able to support the rifle. That's why we call it support gear. So you've got to be able to have extra magazines, you know. So it's just one of those things to consider. No matter what your level of preparation is or what your budget is for what you can afford to do, just work within your budget and do a little bit at a time. And don't think you have to spend a bunch of money. You can buy those Rhodesian rigs used. Mm -hmm. You want to get the ones from the 90s, the old ones. The OG ones. Yes. You can buy the, the used Rhodesian rigs for like 100 bucks. Like, there's no reason to not have one. Yep. They're like a hundred bucks. Great chess rigs too, mm-hmm. you know. And if I mean, guys, you can get some great plate carriers for 150 bucks, and you don't have to. Don't feel like you have to run plates when you buy it. You can get soft armor to supplement that to start out with, you know. Or they, no armor. Or no armor. But I mean, you can get great soft armor, uh, you know, uh, inserts for a very very reasonable cost. It'll stop most handgun rounds i mean we're not talking like five seven hopefully you don't get hit with some five seven but um 
there's just a lot of options. Don't feel like you have to go and drop 10 grand because you saw somebody on IG flexing with the with the Ops Core helmet with, you know, night vision PVS 14s and just like a $10,000 setup, guys. Those are far and few between. No matter how many you see on Instagram, you don't they're not plentiful. You don't see just tons of them. Oh, the military owns the night, we borrow yeah. it. Yep, and trust me, there'll be plenty on the ground for you to pick up, so oh boy. don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so I will mention too on gear um, what I su- would suggest is going on somewhere like eBay and you can find great deals on used uh, London Bridge Trading, mm-hmm. uh, also Tactical Taylor and Blackhawk. The older, especially the older Tactical Taylor stuff is great. Yep. And the older London Bridge Trading stuff is excellent, excellent, excellent gear. It will last you a lifetime. It is good, good, good gear. And you'll save like 40% off what you would buy, buy it new. So don't be afraid to buy used gear. Yep. Uh, you can save a ton of money on support gear by picking up used stuff on eBay. That's what I do. I buy all my stuff used on eBay. And man, your local surplus shop. Okay, so like my one Rhodesian rig that I set up, uh, I paid $80 for the carrier. I paid $5 a piece for the pouches, the magazine <laughs> pouches at my local surplus. Store. Nice. Just used Marine Corps turn-in Molly pouches. Didn't got to be nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. My two medical pouches, uh, they were like $5 at the local Army-Navy store. And then my multi-tool pouch and my pistol mag pouch, like five bucks. I, I literally have no more than maybe 150 bucks in the carrier total. And of course, adding your mags and, right. and equipment. But you don't have to spend a lot of money to support your firearm uh, in the field. You've got to be able to take the gun into the fight and support the gun and yourself in the fight. And it doesn't take a lot of extra effort to do that. And I feel that part of being that minute man is being able to respond to a fight in a hurry, quickly, and to support you, yourself, <laughs> your stuff, and in the immediate 72-hour future. If you can do it in a 72-hour window, you're probably going to come out okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you nailed it. Um, You don't have to go and drop a ton of money. Surplus items work great. I think a lot of people get caught up in the Gucci gang type thing where you have to go out and get the highest name brand and yeah, you can go and drop $800 on a jump, jumpable plate carrier, guys. You will never see the inside of a C-130. There is absolutely no reason for you to have a jumpable plate carrier. Mm-mm. If you don't have to, don't spend $400 on it. You can go and get a great plate carrier that's non-jumpable because, again, nobody here is jumping out of a plane. And it's going to work. It's going to stop a bullet. As long as you put the plates in there, you're good. Yep. So there's lots of different ways to approach it. Um, just understand that there are some some basic categories you need to concentrate on is your primary uh, rifle. I would say at least a, a decent pistol as a backup. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to you know, have your support gear, medical is a huge component of it. I'll just end by saying that, and we are getting close to being uh, towards the end of our podcast here, so thanks for tuning in. But I will mention medical is super important you have a much higher chance of needing to save someone's life than you do uh, need to plug a hole and, you know, to shoot someone, right? Uh, That's just the reality of the situation. The chances of you needing to medically respond to something far outweigh, far, far outweigh uh, the chances that you're going to actually have to get into some sustained crazy gunfight and, you know, like you see in the movies. It's not (laughs) like that. Uh, And the thing is, think about it. All right. If you remove the element of a gunfight from a situation, there are thousands of ways to get hurt, 
right? You look at all the protests going on. People are getting ran over vehicles. People are getting rocks thrown at them, broken glass. Things are exploding. Uh, you've got uh, concussions, abrasions, cuts, burns, burns, yeah. all different ways that you can get hurt, right? And none of it involved firearm, right? You know, so there's lots of ways to get hurt. So the chances of needing to save someone who's badly hurt are going to far outweigh that. So part of being that minute man, yeah, you know, we have to face the unfortunate reality that we may have to take a life, but 90% of that is saving a life. And even, even the taking of a life is done in the name of saving lives. So see, at the end of the day, it's all about trying to save lives. Right. And, 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 you know, that's the reality you have to look at it from. And it may not be a romanticized reality that people, you know, think that they're getting into it for or the reason they're doing it. But the reality is, is that's what you're going to deal with. Right. And you know, a lot of people forget that, you know, that's a great point. When you put holes in somebody, even in a self-defensive situation, you're not just going to sit there and watch the guy bleed out in front of you. I mean, that's the thing people forget. They think they're just going to hit the guy two or three times and they're just going to call the police and just literally watch the guy bleed out in front of them. No, you're going to render aid. It's Make, your it's your duty to stop yeah, bleeding, I mean, this whether is, you cause it or not. Exactly. I mean, you, that's it's still your responsibility. So, you know, you put holes in the guy, plug the holes. I mean, yes, he's going to, you know, call the police, secure the scene, secure your weapon, make sure everything's good, but you still should render aid and make sure that, that everything is good. Yep. So there's a lot of that that goes into it. Well, guys, uh, we really hope uh, that you enjoyed this podcast. And if you're watching here on YouTube, we hope you enjoyed the video. Um, I don't know when the video is going to go up in regards to the podcast, but if you're tuned in on, on YouTube here, uh, definitely go check out the Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit podcast. We post every Friday. Uh, we hope you enjoy this format and you like it. We don't always post the podcast over on YouTube. So if you want to get every podcast, if you like this format, you have to follow us on Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. That's right. Um, that's uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Yep. Where uh, else? Pretty much everywhere that you can find podcasts, we're there. Okay, cool. Yep. Uh, make sure you go over to Ballistic Inc. and pick yourself up a Snazzy t-shirt. Oh, and yeah. that definitely supports our effort. And uh, if you're listening in, uh, definitely thank you guys for tuning in to the podcast. Leave us a great review. Uh, we would really appreciate that. Leave us a five-star review. That helps get us uh, pushed up in the search results. I think now we're, we're, we're getting on up there in terms oh, yeah. of how well the podcast yeah, is Yeah, support has been absolutely amazing. You guys have been great with your feedback. And we always tell you guys, if you have any questions or concerns, um, shoot us an email, uh, info at ballisticinc.com. If you guys want to hear something specific, we're happy to see if that's something we can put on the schedule to talk about. Uh, and we'll get it done. All right. Guys, thanks so much. Remember, uh, live free, be happy. It's all going to be okay. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.